0: Morning, church. What's it say about me that my only takeaway from the prayer time so far is that I can no longer young enough to jump off the platform onto the floor? Thanks for that prayer. It was beautiful, heartfelt. If you're a guest with us, my name is Kelly. I have the privilege of opening God's Word with us this morning. I serve as senior pastor here at Glowing Bible Church. It's our prayer that our guests feel quickly at home and a deep sense of belonging As you're in worship with us each week, we'd ask you to stop by the welcome booth out in the Welcome Center, grab the book that's there titled Following Jesus. It'll help you get to know us as a church. In that book, it talks about our aim as a church, what we believe it means to follow Jesus, how we're trying to help each other do so. And uh, some of my own stories in that book, I'd love for you to read it as you get to know us a little bit. I'd also encourage everyone to listen in to the Next Level podcast. Uh, It's a great way to extend the learning opportunity beyond Sunday morning. Uh, folks, text in questions to the number on the screen. You can do so as well. Text in questions about faith generally, uh, the sermon specifically. We do our best on each Monday morning to sit down and answer those questions. This week, we've got an interesting passage. I think there's fodder for lots of possible questions. Go to wherever you listen. You get your podcast. Search Glen Ellen Bible Church. Two podcasts will pop up. Glow Bible Church's Sermon Feed will pop up, and then the Next Level Podcast, you can listen in. We're in Acts chapter 19. Turn with me there in your copy of the scripture. Follow along as I read. We've been in Acts now for nine weeks. The series titled Together for the Gospel, it traces Paul's efforts as a missionary to spread the good news of the gospel around the Mediterranean world. We've covered the first missionary journey, the second missionary journey, This morning, we are near or into the the third missionary journey. Before I read Paul's experience in Ephesus, let's look at a map up on the screen, get our bearings. This is a map of Paul's third journey. He takes off from Antioch, which is on the right side of the screen in ancient Syria. He's going to uh, cross the Taurus Mountains near his hometown, Tarsus, and then proceed into Cilicia, a region there of, near the Mediterranean uh, coastline. And then he's going to make his way to towns to visit churches that um, he's been to during the first and second journeys. He's going to encourage believers there in Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian, Antioch. Now, I love maps, not simply because I'm a social studies geek, but I like to put maps up because it reminds us these were real trips, visiting real people, and offering a real hope through faith in Jesus Christ. This isn't make believe. The New Testament is grounded in historic record, and so we know the the cities visited, and uh, we're thankful for the report of this historic, uh, these historic trip. In fact, here it's a couple more pictures. These pictures of the Cilician Gates, right? So he goes from Antioch into Tarsus. He has to cross a mountain range, the Taurus Mountains. The Tarsus Mountains are about 10,000 feet high at places. They're rocky, snow-covered. And so certain times of year you couldn't get through at all, but there is a pass that you can still drive through today, which Paul most certainly took to get across the mountains. It's the Cilician Gates is what they're known. And so here's pictures of it, and again, just kind of grounding this in history, Paul certainly must have used this pass to get into Asia Minor, what is today modern Turkey. And so I'm in Acts chapter 19, and we're going to read, I'm going to read seven verses, follow along as I read. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus, Ephesus port city on the Aegean Sea. There he found some disciples and he asked them, quote, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Close quotes. They answered, no. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to actually believe, believe in the one coming after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There are about 12 men in all. We'll stop there for today. I wonder what Paul saw going on in the lives of these 12 men or what he heard from them that made him ask the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I wonder what data he was taking in in his interactions with them that made him ask this question. I'm not sure what he saw or experienced from them, but we should understand clearly from this passage that it is entirely possible to hang out around the church, to hang out with the people of God, even behave as a disciple and not have received God's great gift of the Holy Spirit, which is to say to hang out around the church, to hang out with the people of God and not actually be believing in Jesus have you received the Holy Spirit? Which is the same as asking, are you trusting in Christ as Savior? The men in today's passage, they answered no to the question, have you received the Holy Spirit? They they said they haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. Yet the Bible teaches clearly that God is one with three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person within the Godhead is fully God and distinct in essence, and each has a distinct and complementary role to play in salvation history. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The spirit's role in salvation history is clearly detailed throughout scripture. I've collected a few examples, they're on the screen. This list is not exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, a great study is to open Acts and just read all the times the spirit's mentioned and what the spirit's up to. The spirit convicts of sin, righteousness and judgment. Come Holy Spirit. Convict us this morning. That's a part of the Spirit's role. We have nothing to fear from the Spirit. The Spirit wants to care for us in this convicting work. It's Jesus who describes these activities. The Scriptures, John 16. It's to your advantage I go away. It's the upper room discourse, the last night he's going to have with the disciples. It's to your advantage I go away. They don't want him to go away. But if I do not go away, the Helper, capital H, the Helper will not come to you. The person of the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Spirit indwells believers. Here. Now. This morning. Praise God. John 7, we read, He who believes in me, it's Jesus talking, From his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John describes, he interprets what Jesus is talking about in John 7. He says, but this, by this he spoke of the Spirit, these living waters springing up, this presence that's got unending power. But this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him will receive. And in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul asks rhetorically, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? The Spirit seals believers, guaranteeing salvation. Do you know we don't guarantee our salvation? We're not holding on to God. He's holding on to us. In Ephesians 1, we read as much, Paul's writing to the believers in uh, the city in which Acts chapter 19 is set. He writes a letter to them later. He says, having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who's given us a pledge of our inheritance to come with a view towards the redemption of God's own possession. We were bought with a price. We are not our own. The Spirit empowers believers to live righteously, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. So I say to you, Paul's writing, live by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the sinful nature, the desires of the flesh. Then he goes on to give a, a little list of the desires of the flesh, as well as a little list of the fruit of the Spirit so that we can see the difference in living according to the flesh and letting the Spirit bear fruit in our lives or having the Spirit bear fruit in our lives. The Spirit gifts believers for service. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Christ is about to ascend, go back into heaven. He's already been raised. He's taught now for 40 days on the earth, his disciples, and he's about to go back to be with the Father. He says, but you'll receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come on you, you'll be my witnesses. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's detailing the, the role of the Spirit in the life of a believer. He says there are varieties of gifts, all types of gifts that the Spirit gives, but the same Spirit to each is given this manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We see a couple gifts in action in today's passage, tongues and prophecy. For the common good the gift te- uh, the spirit teaches believers how how to live John 14 again it's the upper room discourse it's the night before he goes to the cross he says the helper again capital H the Holy Spirit John 14:26 whom the Father will send in my name he'll teach you all things it's not I'm not doing the teaching Lord help us if I'm the best teacher in the room this morning the Holy Spirit's about. He's in and among us and working. He's speaking to our hearts and our minds. He's convicting us of sin and righteousness. He's our teacher, the teacher of our kids downstairs, the teacher in our homes when we open God's Word. The Spirit's our teacher. He's leading us into righteousness. After his resurrection, before his ascension, Jesus spent 40 days on earth teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. During that time, he promised them the coming Holy Spirit. And he said to them, don't leave Jerusalem. Stay here. They wait 10 more days for a total of 50. Pentecost, which means the 50th day, right? Pentecost, it's the condescension of the Spirit. He says, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift. The gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. Then he draws the distinction that Paul draws in Acts 19. He says, "For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit." Do you remember John the Baptist? Interesting character in the biblical narrative, interesting role in salvation history. He was the cousin of Jesus, born to the old lady Elizabeth. I call her that because the scripture notes that she was beyond childbearing age and had waited many, many years. The birth of John, her pregnancy is miraculous. Zechariah, the doubter, priest before the altar of God, right, who struck dumb. He can't come out and, and describe what he's seen, and he can't speak until uh, the day that the, the angel allows him to speak again. John the Baptist is born to Elizabeth in Zechariah for a very particular purpose. He's to prepare the way for God's Son. He preaches in the wilderness repentance, calling the nation of Israel to confess and, and return to faith in God. Strange character. He wore camel's hair clothing. Right, which is an irritant. It's not a comfortable clothing. He ate locusts and honey, not a great diet. He lived out in the wilderness by himself. He's an Old Testament prophet-type guy. There'd been silence before, between the close of the Old Testament and the, this dawn of the new era for some 400 years, and then John the Baptist comes preaching in the wilderness repentance Interesting to learn that when Paul distinguished between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism in today's passage in Ephesus, chapter 19, Acts 19, he wasn't the first to draw this distinction. He did so only because Jesus had done so. John's baptism was one of repentance, which is to say, it's a call to confess and turn from sin and to make a public commitment, recommitment, to do good works, to try harder in a life of honoring God. John's baptism was basically a recommitment to embrace the law. In this way, John's baptism, the dunking of John's baptism was a ritual cleansing. It was seen as a purification, old things gone, new things to come. Jesus himself was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. He said at that time, to fulfill all righteousness. He's a son of the law. Kept the law perfectly. This is all of the baptism that the disciples in Ephesus, who Paul was speaking with, had experienced. This recommitment to the law. The problem is John's baptism didn't bring any real change in a person's ability to keep the law. The repentant person walked away from John's baptism the same as they were before they were dunked. A little wetter for the experience, but no real change. Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit is categorically different because by it we are changed on the inside. By the coming presence of God with us. Rather than simply soaked with water on the outside, we experience the person of God with us. If it sounds mysterious, you're hearing rightly. In fact, I would go so far as to say that's one of the reasons people opt for John's baptism over Jesus' 21 centuries later. And it's not that anybody's getting baptized in the name of John. But all that John's baptism represents is something our flesh longs for in many ways. And all that Jesus' baptism represents is something that only the Spirit moves us towards. Mystery can unnerve a lot of folks, and they opt out. Our tradition, the Bible church tradition, the the fundamentalist tradition, Uh, the Reformed movement, um, often described as the Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. That is not the Trinity. The Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the mysterious person of God at work in the world, doing as He wills. You know, the Spirit has a will. And some people opt out of following Jesus because they don't like the mystery of the Spirit. Some Christians don't go on to maturity. They're basking in the grace of God towards them, shown in Christ the Son, and they don't go on to maturity because uh, that's all too weird, the mystery of the Spirit. The writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews described the uniqueness of this new baptism writing, and we saw it on the screen this morning. In Hebrews 10, 16, the writer of Hebrews quotes Ezekiel 37, I'll put my laws on their hearts, interior change, and I'll write them on their minds. This means for those trusting in Jesus, the burden of change no longer rests solely on our shoulders. Who or what do we believe is our greatest hope for change? God help us if I'm my greatest hope for change. If you're your greatest hope for change. I wonder if Paul, while spending time in Ephesus, saw and heard these men live hopeless with regard to sin. Maybe something they were saying or doing. Maybe it was in their posture. Do you have habits in your life you want to see changed? Do you have a sinful pattern you want to be done with? Or a historic wound that you've suffered that you want to see God heal? Our greatest hope for change is the Spirit. John's baptism was a, a symbol of one's commitment. Our greatest hope for change is not more effort. John's baptism was a symbol of one's commitment to do everything physically possible to remain faithful to God. Admirable, but not our greatest hope. The baptism of the Spirit, on the other hand, is an experience of actually receiving the presence of God with us, and allowing Him to bring change, and depending on Him to bring change, and celebrating the change He's working. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is the Spirit's fruit. It's not my fruit. It's not our fruit. Another reason, some people opt out of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We like to take credit. We want people to see Kelly's fruit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit delivers the resurrection power of God directly into us. Do you not know that you're the temple of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit? And in this particular case, the power evidenced in these 12 men's lives is seen in a particular set of gifts that the Spirit brings with and imparts tongues and prophecy, speaking in unstudied or unknown languages. Prophecy is the proclamation of truth. This is a prophetic work here. When we sing together, there's a prophetic element. We're proclaiming who God is and what he's done. They speak in tongues. They prophesy. What gifts from the Spirit have you received? How are you using them for the common good? Question four in the bulletin. Each week we write questions to go a little deeper. It's the fourth question in the going deeper section. It asks, what gifts are you exercising that you've received? You know, you receive gifts in your biological birth. We call them abilities, talents. You know, you receive gifts in your new birth, spiritual gifts. Which you've been, imp- the Spirit's brought to, to bless you with, and so that you can know the, the value of contributing and the, find your place in the body of Christ, the church, and, and serve each other. The prayer I most often pray for my kids is they'd find their place in the church. They'd come to Christ early in life, follow Jesus all the days of their life, find their place in the church, and know the joy of bearing a whole bunch of fruit using their gifts. Why does all this matter? Well, it it means that white-knuckling change is not our greatest hope. Hanging on for dear life while sinful habits take us on a wild ride, while historic traumas prevent us from experiencing freedom and joy, that doesn't have to be our experience. The truth is that discipline alone, no matter how effective, never reaches the root of our need for change. We can white-knuckle our way to sobriety and fidelity. But the desire for alcohol and the longing to flirt with someone other than our spouse will remain. 12-step programs have value. I've participated in 12-step programs. There's nothing wrong with discipline. It's just not our greatest hope for change. I'm not my greatest hope. I'm not your greatest hope. You're not my greatest hope. We're not each other's greatest hope. Our greatest hope for change is the Spirit of God. Oh, church, hear this clearly. The desire to put away sinful habits is is birthed as the Spirit works in our lives and the power to put them away is a work of the Spirit in our lives. Through the baptism of the Spirit, God changes our hearts' desires. He writes them His desires on our hearts and on our minds. The good news of Jesus' baptism in the Spirit is that the root of sinfulness is pulled up It's pulled up that weed ain't coming back the desire we have for sin begins to wane and we can renew our minds we can see the world differently we can perceive reality differently we can think differently about historic events we can move forward with Christ as our appetite for godliness increases. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Which is to ask, are you trusting in Jesus as Savior? If not, do so this morning. Tell God, I'm tired of thinking on my greatest hope. I need your Spirit. Thank you for Christ who died so that the Spirit could come. So in the temple, nearly everything had to be cleansed by blood, and so they would uh, slay animals and sprinkle the blood all over the temple, around on the accoutrements of the temple, so that the person of God could condescend on the temple. It was purification. When the blood of Jesus Christ is applied to us by faith, then we can become the place, we can become the vessel made clean so that the Spirit of God can dwell with us. Trust in Christ. Receive the Holy Spirit. One of the primary ways we demonstrate our trust in Jesus is through baptism. That's how these people this morning in Acts 19 expressed their trust in Jesus. They had been baptized uh, according to John's baptism and, and not received the Holy Spirit. And he says, well, John pointed to Jesus. He wants us to believe in Jesus. They said, okay. And then they get baptized in Jesus's name and they receive the Holy Spirit in a fairly demonstrable way. Paul didn't make that baptism up himself. Jesus was baptized by John. Then Jesus commanded that all his followers be baptized as well. They be taught to observe all that he has taught us. That we be baptized. Our next baptism is April 9th. We invite you to be baptized. If you've never been baptized and you're trusting in Christ, be baptized. It's a great way to symbolize you're done trusting in yourself and you're going to trust in the man Jesus for the change and for forgiveness of sin and for resurrection power. April 9th is Easter morning, and I know that Easter is not ideal for all families. I get that. There's family gatherings and whatnot. And if that's the case, we'll, we'll find another day for you to be baptized. But we'd urge you to be baptized. Baptism is important. It's significant in following after Christ because it, it physically symbolizes His death, going under the water, His resurrection. Christ died and was buried for the forgiveness of our sins. That's what the baptism, we're trusting in His death. Christ was raised from the grave as the first fruits, the first indication of God's work of redemption in the world. And so when we bring people up out of the water, it's it's a symbol of his resurrection. So baptism is a way to preach that you're depending not on yourself any longer. You're depending on the grace of God shown towards you in Christ and for the changing power of the Holy Spirit. The good news of the gospel is that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Get this. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. Paul writes that in Romans 8:11. The spirit that brought the dead man Jesus back to life, that rolled the, the tombstone away and, and brought him to a new life, right? That same spirit at work lives in us. It's good news. But I'll be be direct with you. As wonderful as it is, being changed from the inside out, having the root of sin addressed in my lives, in our lives, through faith in Jesus, knowing that I don't have to white-knuckle it. Instead, I can throw myself on the mercy of God, who works in me according to his will and his perfect pleasure. And that apart from him, I can do nothing, John 15, 5. As great as that news is, some people opt for John's baptism. 21 centuries later, there's still people saying, no, I want to demonstrate independence. I don't really like the notion of being dependent on another man, Jesus, on the Spirit of God. I I want to show that I can do it. Some people prefer independence over dependence. Rather than depend on the Holy Spirit's power, they want to show that they're able to overcome the sin in their lives. And our, our ego, I'll admit, I've struggled with that. We all, the world calls it self-esteem. We want to feel good about ourselves. We want to step to the throne of God and say, hey, look what I did. And if that's the case, then we don't understand how deeply ingrained is sin, how utterly without hope apart from Christ we are. Some also prefer John's baptism because They like self-righteousness rather than imputed righteousness. Imputation simply means imparting. And when you accept Christ, when you believe in Christ, you're admitting that you have no righteousness on your own, that you're sinful in need of saving. And when you make that declaration, then the righteousness of another man, Jesus Christ, is imparted, is imputed to you. And you can stand before the throne of God based on the righteousness of Christ, not on your own righteousness. Well, some people don't like that, and I understand that. Some people want a sense of self-righteousness. They want to demonstrate their worth and value. Well, make sure you understand the gospel isn't saying you're worthless or valueless. Christ wouldn't have come to die if we were worthless or valueless. We are supreme. We are of supreme value to God our Father, the creator of all things, so much so that he sent Christ to die for us. But God's not confused about our ability to overcome sin. But we can be confused about it. There is none righteous, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah says, not one. And don't hear me as cynical or um, angry in describing those who prefer John's baptism. I'm not meaning to put them down. I'm trying to point out some of the reasons people reject Jesus. And I'm urging us don't let those reasons be a barrier. Don't let a desire for independence from your Creator keep you from trusting in the Son. Don't let the desire for self-righteousness keep you from the perfect righteousness that Christ longs to give you. In fact, there are many many Christians who treat a life of faith as something more closely akin to John's baptism than the Holy Spirit's baptism. Far, far too many Christians have not fully understand understood the utter inability to overcome sin on their own. Some of us, we receive God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, but then we want to finish our lives with John's baptism. We start with Jesus and then we're going to run according to the law. We're going to demonstrate our value. Hey, thanks for the help in saving, but now let me show you how strong I am. Jesus says, apart from him, we can do Nada. Through him we can do all things. And far too many Christians are striving under their own power as if they're John's disciples. Far too many Christians are not experiencing the rest that is ours. There is an invitation to rest through the knowledge that God's loved us perfectly showered his grace and mercy upon us. Far too many of us are missing out on the life-transforming power because our flesh, our pride, our egos want to resist utter dependence. That's what the gospel is inviting us to, utter dependence on him. At the beginning of our life of faith, throughout our life of faith, and at the end of our life of faith, we see him stand before him. Let's be honest, a call to try harder, John's baptism, virtually everybody in the 21st century is still saying that, that's what we hear from our coaches. Try harder. You got to do better. You got to work harder. You've got to run faster. You got to jump higher. You need to, to modify your behavior in this area. You have to perfect yourself here. Our teachers, our coaches, right, our bosses, you got to work harder, demonstrate your worth, your value. If you want a promotion, you want to go to the college you want, if you want to get a pay raise, some parents are saying it as well. Jesus is calling us to something completely different. The invitation of Christ is otherworldly. It's on the screen. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. Hmm. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble of heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Folks, if the yoke you are experiencing is difficult and the burden is crushing, It's not the yoke of Jesus you're carrying. And Of course, there's nothing wrong with discipline. Discipline is certainly a part of discipleship. They share the same root word, discipline, discipleship. Discipline in my life, our lives, the lives of believers, is only as effective as our dependence on the Holy Spirit. It's only as effective as we learn from the gentle and humble one, Jesus Christ. Is that your experience of who Jesus is? Or is he harsh and demanding? That's not our Savior. Too often, discipline in many Christians' lives is simply a fleshly attempt to demonstrate our own power, prowess, abilities. And for that reason, many Christians don't experience the real-life change that's offered through the Spirit. Far too many come to faith in Jesus by accepting the message of grace, and then they continue under their own efforts. Discipline is important to a life of discipleship, but I have grown to believe that following Jesus is primarily about dependence. Here's what I mean. The disciplines that I need to cultivate are not in an effort to... Defeat sin. The disciplines that we need to cultivate are in an effort to depend on the Spirit. And far, far too often we hear that we need to work harder in order to overcome. Well, by His stripes we're healed. So, The discipline we need is actually disciplines aimed at dependence. And I think the reason I, in the 21st century suburban church, resist that is because dependence isn't what we learn growing up often. We we want our kids to become independent. And we, we try to launch them so they can stand on their own two feet. I get all that. In America, highly values independence, right? We were uh, birthed in our desire to be independent from Britain. And we want financial independence. And the disciplines that are needed to be cultivated are actually disciplines of greater dependence, disciplines that reveal my weakness. Vulnerability. Confession. When was the last time you confessed your sin, not generically I'm a sinner, but specifically lust, pride, whatever your favorite sin is? You confessed it when you open. It's the disciplines that reveal our weaknesses. Fasting. Too often we hear the call to fasting as, hey, we need to fast as a church and, and show our ability. Well, the first thing fasting is going to do is it reveal your weakness. The, the term hangry, right? The culture understands hangry. It's, it's the anger produced by being hungry. Our weaknesses are revealed. Our utter inability to provide for ourselves and our needed dependence on the spirit prayer prayer is this beautiful activity of inactivity have you ever thought about prayer prayer is this activity in which we're inactive talking to our father about all that we can't do and unless he shows up it won't get done it's a it's an activity of dependence So when we say pray more, it's not to to strengthen the flesh. It's to experience more dependence, which brings this flood of the Holy Spirit's release in our lives. Humility. I've come to believe that the disciplines Christ is calling us to consistently require humility and that's why I resist them. That's why I resist them because I often wait till pain uh, requires humility, you know, dysfunction of some sort. So the rest he's inviting us to is a rest of utter dependence. Let me pray for us toward that end. Father, I want to pray for your goodness to us as a people. We thank you for the baptism of the Holy Spirit in a room full of people that have, in fact, received your Holy Spirit. I pray we'd continue under the power of the Holy Spirit, not under our own power. Oh, Lord, forgive us when we seek our own glory and think we'll do it on our own and that we're be impressive. Thank you that you value us completely, that you love us totally and perfectly and are patient with us. Would you draw us into disciplines of greater dependence? In Jesus' name, amen.